Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Palace of Thought, everyone. This is your host, your gracious, you know, guide to the experience. This is Edie Alexander. Please, um, make yourself comfortable in the palace. We have some, uh, we're going to be pushing some thought today. My thoughts have been centered on this prison strike um, that just concluded. Um, it just concluded August 8th, um, last weekend or the 9th. It just concluded last Sunday. And, you know, I, I just been really just kind of trying to find a way to nail this into our history and what lessons can the history imprint on the experiences going through today. Now, for some of you, this may be the first time hearing about the prison strike. And this is why I'm kind of doing this show. You know, I've looked at a lot of interviews with people participating in the strike, and they said the number one thing they need is some media coverage. And that's something that's been lacking from the prison strike. You haven't seen it in too many columns. Just I think Vox, they've done some things, but you really got to kind of dig deep to get some good information that isn't uh, repetitive. And so I think um, it's my duty as a, as a member of the media, I guess, uh, especially as a um, you know a media push and thought to definitely address what I think is one of the most important issues that uh, face our democracy today. Um, and so in order to do this, um, I definitely needed a team of panels that you've definitely heard from for before. Um, so I'm excited to invite into the palace. My man just finished his LSAT, you know, going into the going to the bar, future attorney general, future whatever he wants to be. My man, Collis Giddens, please welcome into the Palace of Thought, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm here just to help out. And the thoughts that you have to offer are usually worthy of the palace. So I'm glad I'm welcome. We build a palace for it. And then, uh, of course, we have our our resident um, Palace of Thought resident uh, advisor, resident contributor, of course. Um, Collis, one more episode. You get the same title. We all become residents. Um, but of course, please welcome Hanai to the to the palace, everyone. Howdy, everybody. Uh, I'm excited to be back. I'm, I'm excited for uh, what we've got cooking today. It's uh, a worthwhile topic. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm ready to dive in. We're definitely going to go dive in. And I know the strike just happened and it just ended a couple of days ago. But uh, this story is rooted back in the past, you know, December 6, 1865. 11 months after being passed by Congress, the 13th Amendment was finally ratified. It would read, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place subject to jurisdiction. Now, it would take a civil war and the assassination of uh, President Lincoln, but officially the slave system was finally dead. So we would love to believe. However, there contained an asterisk or a kind of hidden message written within the amendment. One final exception in which slavery or involuntary servitude shall exist with should not exist within the United States, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Now, this isn't really an original idea, original thought. If you've seen Ava DuVernay's and follow her career, her groundbreaking documentary 13th made a masterful indictment on the American system. Um, and so in what ways we have to ask ourselves is the modern prison industrial complex a continuation of the slave system? And I do admit we must, you know, at least note the differences in between being a forced immigrant off the African coast, being uprooted from your culture, completely cut off, punished, raped, attacked, tortured for upwards into you know centuries, creating a modern world. And between people who, in some extent, had a choice and, you know, the ways they uh, 
were able to carry out their lives and getting caught up in the legal system and being part of the prison, um, being indicted. But as the history and the research has shown us, a lot of this choice that our people are having is less likely of a choice for people of color, for people well under the poverty line. Um, and then the, the similarities just become too big to ignore. Slavery was permitted to exist because it was legally, it was a law written in the books. And as long as something is written, you can strip away the morality and the ethics and you can go straight down to the paper and the document. And the document said at some point in this country, it was legal to use humans as laborers, legal to own them as property, to strip them of all humanity. And while we applaud a new day with the 13th Amendment, that one exception still troubles us and haunts us today. And that is what we're talking about. It is this problem with democracy that has spurred activists working within the prison industrial complex to come together and unify. And so I want to kind of give you guys some context on what's going on and in, in, in the ways in which this whole strike unfolded. And we can speak on the conditions of slavery versus being imprisoned. But there's an economic piece to this story. And when we speak of, you know, the imprisoned, when we imprison people and when they're locked away, it becomes out of thought, out of mind. But one thing that also occurs is that they become a literal mine of wealth for corporations, for these seedy private prisons. And there's a reason in which America, despite only owning, what, 5% of the world's population, has incarcerated 25% of the prison population because of the state, a country that was built upon the backs of slavery and which became an economic world power off the basis of slavery. Some of those genetic roots are a little too deep to pull up. And so I want to speak on that today. And so uh, as we look through the strike, our our um, representatives from the inside have given us 10 demands in which they wanted to address with this prison strike. Um, and we will speak on the ways they have done resistance. I mean, a lot of people don't understand the ways in which prison work. And I'm going to let Hannah kind of jump on this. You know, in, in what ways are, you know, prisoners um, expected to contribute to the financial system of, you know, just within the prison ecosystem? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, <clears throat> first and foremost, with private prisons, um, if the prisons aren't full, uh, they're they're not making money. And so there's an incentive for these private prisons to fill up. And uh, so you see these. um laws that Collis will talk about in a bit working in tandem with um, these private prisons such as Clinton's 1994 law enforcement act um, mm -hmm. you know these these laws uh, connected with um, the further privatization uh, creates conditions for uh, the the labor that we see but also uh, some of the Companies that employ prison labor, um, Walmart, uh, many uh, agricultural firms. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, in that way, I mean, it's it's hearkening back to uh, pre-Civil War slavery in very literal fashions with people working out in fields for less than the prevailing wage in the state, if a wage um, at all. Um, but... But yeah, I mean, so the, the, like Ed said, I mean, the, the root of this, uh, was the, the, like the privatization was, uh, came 
after the 13th amendment, after the civil war. So, um, but what is actually fairly unknown is that pr prior to the civil war, there were a few examples, not corporations, but wealthy individuals who paid to have prisoners build roads, uh, canals mm. and facilitate settler expansion westward. Uh, there was a, a wealthy person named Joel Scott, who as early as 1825 uh, was employing prisoners to uh, facilitate uh, settler colonialism. Um, 1844, mm. the state of Louisiana began leasing uh, the labor of prisoners from Baton Rouge uh, Correctional Facility. Um, and 1852, uh, two uh, capitalists, if you will, um, J.M. Mm -hmm. Estill and M.G. Vallejo, uh, they swapped land to ensure that there was a place to regulate prison labor in California. Um, so they were working sort of among themselves uh, and then also in coordination with the state to, to bring about... Uh, prison labor. Um, so that were, those were the earliest examples, but, but yeah, today it's usually mega corporations that are employing prison labor. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and that was one of the demands listed. Um, I think it was the second demand as, uh, they call for an immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. And so what, what are some of the rates that um, prisoners are, you know, are being compensated for the work they do? What type of work are they being asked to do in that, in that, in that sense? Is it dangerous work? Is it everyday labor that you and I would be glad to wake up to? Like what's, 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 what's some of the, the economic, what's some of the details within that? Um, so, yeah, like I said, there's, there's field work, there's factory work, like textiles, uh, like Walmart, the uh, prison labor, a lot of the clothes that Walmart makes comes from prison labor. Um, but also on the West Coast, uh, primarily California, when the forest fires are raging in the summer during fire season, uh, many prisoners are uh, used as firefighters uh, on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And I've, from what I've researched, some of these uh, prisoners are making as little as like $1.99 an hour to fight fires. Um, $1.99. Yeah. Well, Collis, have you ever worked for $1.99? Has that ever? <laughs> never once, never an option. And even when it was minimum wage at seven fifty, I was complaining. <laughs> Yeah, like we all reserve the right to complain, and I don't think any of us were fighting forest fires at that matter. Um, sorry, I didn't mean no, to cut you off, Hannah. No, um, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, and 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 something we we talked about a little bit earlier, and I mean, so then once people are out of prison, um, they are not able to then go apply to be a firefighter and make the prevailing wage or join the union mm -hmm. or etc. They're they're barred from that. Um, so, so the one, to what you're saying is also that they're, while they may be working while in prison, the skills that they would accumulate while doing said work is not applicable to outside prison. They're not valid as employees. So I think it's ten, technically it's, it's our modern day scarlet letter to have a felony on your record uh, mm -hmm. where your applications get stipend, you, 
there are so many different things, not stipend, stifled. There's so many different things that just having that felony on your record prevent you from progressing or ever getting past it. Um, you have to understand that there are quite a few kids, whether they're 17, 18, just above the line of adulthood who are being charged with felonies. And if they get out within a 10 year window, you have a 30 year old young man or woman who can't really do much. And the likelihood of re-entering the prison process is extremely high. Um, you're looking for funding, you live in a ghetto or you live in a impoverished Midwest, so your options are pretty limited. If I can't find a spot in a factory or at the McDonald's, I'm going to sell drugs. And what is that going to get me doing? And I'm ending up in the right same place. And even if it isn't as serious as drugs, the different um, uh, rehabilitative measures that are taken, well, if anything, it's the lack of those rehabilitative um, measures to be taken. These people aren't giving any kind of training. And that's exactly what um, this first charge is for. Um, not first charge, but one of the many tenets or commandments that they're looking to get attained is the fact that mm -hmm. they want to be respected as though they were actually doing work. People can quib and quabble about where the money goes while they're in prison. But by the time someone leaves, either the skills or the money for what they were doing deserves to be theirs. And I think that's the point that they're making. And I think it's also important to note that the group that got this going, uh, the jailhouse lawyers speak, it was a group of incarcerated members who, upon exiting the prison system, are now trying to be the voice for them. And I think that is crucial to understand because this isn't just a random group that feels sympathy. This is a group who actually was in this position and many of them may still be in that position. Um, and having that perspective behind why this strike started i think is huge a lot of people at least in my experience they come across hearing it and they're like oh prisoners are upset again like we said at the top of the show prisoners are mm -hmm. out of sight and out of mind so people aren't paying yeah. attention to their needs however when you hear that someone has come out of prison amongst all of the different social um stigma that comes with that the idea that these people know what it's like to be in prison they're not engaged in the same activities that got them there and yet they still feel a need to change something that they've experienced maybe years ago. So um, I mm. think it's very important to note that these are, these are uh, an organized group that is really pushing for rights that they themselves um, suffered from. Yeah, it's a world that I don't think we often give ourselves a reason to dive into, to really think into the mindset of a prisoner. There's a podcast that um, I don't know how they're able to do it, but they're able to make a podcast within prison. They have special privileges, but... Um, it, you really need that that kind of virtual experience just to understand how the conditions of imprisonment are subhuman. And um, that's that's how they start off their demand. So demand number one, they want an immediate improvement to the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women. Um, I go to the story. Um, I was reading an article from Vice and um uh, an imprisoned uh, a prisoner named Terrell Thomas died from profound dehydration. Now imagine that, like you you re you watch the news every day and you see you know some horrific stuff, whether it be you know tragic car accident. I you know I live in Boston. I just saw you know so twenty one year old fell over a boat and he drowned. Um, but you don't see that headline often. You know, dying of dehydration, you know, dying of starvation, you see a little bit more, I guess. But that seemed, that's a, a headline you would more or less fix to somewhere in the out world, in an undeveloped country where water isn't a resource. 
And what troubles people is the ways in which prisoners aren't safe behind those cells. And, you know, um, I mean, the, these, the Terrell Thomas was placed in solitary confinement in the Milwaukee County, uh, Milwaukee County jail cell. And he had been begging correctional officers for something to drink for a week. So this man went a week without water. And he asked every single one. And um, at the end of the week, he was quiet, slumped over, and he died. And, you know, people say you lock them up just to promote public safety. But the damage that occurs psychologically of these people who emerge from the jail cells on top of all of the handicaps is damaging. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have looked into it, um, but there's some startling statistics on like the um, on the literacy rates of prisoners. And then I think of slavery and how, you know, slaves were not allowed to be literate. They weren't allowed to teach themselves. And if they were, it was under threat of execution. And, you know, the the rates are stifled. I mean, just we're talking like 70 percent, 65 percent, you know, of prisoners are unable to like read past like a third grade level. The amount of prisoners who are uh, who develop or go into prison with um, with uh, with disabilities, you know, saying mental handicaps, um, and I know, you know, this may be a sensitive topic for um, Hannah Eid. Now, you speak, I mean, you teach um, special education at John Adams High School in, you know, South Bend, Indiana. And so, you know, I'm wondering, like, and, and what tactics are you taught as a, you know, as a teacher working with, spe- um, with kids in special education to, you know, like, how do you cope with some, yeah, some of their, um, um, their well, needs? That I don't have. teach at Adams, but I do. Teach- no, 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 no. It's okay. I went to Adams, so shout out to that school. Go Eagles. Anyway. Um, but, uh, I mean, yes, I mean, the strategies, uh, vary with, uh, the, the kids that I work with, um, you know, but to, mm-hmm. to imagine that an adult who is working and enriching a corporation has a lower reading ability than a student of mine who is 10 years old is i mean it's baffling number one um but on on this note of of education being stripped from prisoners with uh the law enforcement act of 1994 that bill clinton passed uh hidden in the fine print was the um liquidation of over 300 college education programs in prisons so higher education has been stripped so you can sometimes maybe get a high school education there. Um, and then, yeah, you're, you, you come out and you're expected to, um, uh, like Collis was saying, none of the work you did, none of the, you know, uh, uh, even in, in some cases, I mean, you can't even achieve higher education. So when you're coming out 30 years old, say, and it is made such that you cannot participate in society in any meaningful way. Um, and then with street three strike laws, I mean, it, it's, it's a system that predates upon itself. The, the, the issues that we're discussing, they compound on one another. Um, and I think you hit on a pretty important point because, uh, when Bill Clinton came forward with this idea, it was seen predominantly bipartisan. Um, it was considered good. Um, there were quite a few crimes that were breaking out and, Many people can discuss why these crimes were breaking out and why they were drug related. But the, the laws that were passed, that 1994 bill, it provided funding 
for tens of thousands of community police officers. So that's something that kind of gives you that feel for what happened with the Zimmerman case and the fact that these weren't necessarily going directly to state or federal um, agencies. These were community um, uh, police officers, drug courts. And while it did ban particular um, assault weapons, it mandated life sentences for convicted violent felonies after two or more convictions. Um, And that's where the three strikes comes from. So you have to understand that that third strike is inclusive of nonviolent felonies. So these drug-related crimes, whether it would be hard cocaine, crack cocaine, weed, this, that, or the next, the two or three charges of those compound into you are now in prison for life. Um, and for those who may not have been in prison for life, the lack of education that they are likely not receiving while in prison, a 30-year-old male or female, and 30 is being extremely generous, but even given that, uh, an uneducated or poorly educated male or female at the age of 30 with a felony is not going to find many job opportunities. It's not going to find many opportunities, period. Um, Which is why the idea of having either the opportunity to learn while in prison or being paid. Now, even if an ambitious 30-year-old man steps out of prison with his felony or felonies and is truly eager to support himself in finding an education, whether that be a BA, whether that be a master's, whatever the case is, the idea of affording education today affects the middle class down. To think that a prisoner is going to enter the middle class overnight and then manage to fight through the different predations that come his way due to having the felony is just excruciatingly difficult. I can't imagine knowing what it is, let alone to then add that they're likely going to be of color that they're likely going to be coming from lower income communities to begin with. So friends and family may not even be able to support. So the idea that these things truly do build upon one another, it's extremely, um, I could imagine, frustrating if, I mean, obviously I've never been a prisoner, but just witnessing the, the environment that we're placed in, I think private jails are also something that deserve uh, a little bit more scrutiny. Um, what I was able to find is that the very first for-profit prison occurred in 1852. However, when all of a sudden, particularly during Reagan's presidency, the idea of deregulation and the idea of privatization and the benefits that we can get from whether it be trickle-down or however you want to think of the economic scheme, that was insanely, uh, how, how can I even put it? It was, if not the most crucial time for these private jail businesses, because now states who are looking for funding on all these other different things are getting um, different referrals from large corporations saying, hey, we will open up a prison and we will run it for you, saving you upwards to $15 million in your own funding. So a state is clearly going to want to take that offer if it means like they were being promised. It being run better, a lot more efficient. Efficient is a term that you're seeing a lot with prisons. And I personally don't know what an efficient prison might be? Does that mean people are in and out quickly? What makes it more efficient? Those terms are always extremely vague. Um, But as you get down to it, all of a sudden, like Hannah had mentioned earlier, when the prisons are full, that allows for more tax breaks for these companies. And that allows for them, obviously, therefore, to make more money. So the incentive not only to keep the prison full, but for whatever prisoner might get out on probation, to keep the likelihood that that prisoner comes back is huge. So that framework of economics then compounds to a level where now we have a full prison 
But yet, turns out the crime rate happened to go up in this local county. So then we're going to flood even more prisoners in, and now you have living conditions that simply don't work. You have eight men in a bunk that was meant for be only two to four, and then all of a sudden those things, can, there's not enough food, so they ration the food less. And to think that there's something like dehydration causing a death in modern day is beyond me. Starvation is maybe one thing, but the access to water, particularly in the United States, where everyone here is more than wealthy enough to attain water, it just becomes more and more alarming the more information you have. So I think it's important to note that there's an economic structure where people are benefiting off of, I mean, the, 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 um, excuse me, the expenditures, their expenditure plans for some of these corporations that have private uh, prisons are in the billions. So this isn't small, and this is why we haven't seen a lot of change in it. There's a lot of money going left and right when it comes to these private prisons. Um, and it's important to know why a state or why a government would want to pursue keeping it rather than getting rid of it. I think we're, we can understand clearly these prisoners are in, investing in, in what seems to be pretty straightforward demands. We want to be treated as humans, maybe give us the right to vote because no one has been able to get prison reform correct yet. And why not ask the prisoners themselves? The series of things that just seem counterintuitive, um, they start to layer up in a way that it gets to be a little heavy after a while, but that's where we're at. So I think it's important to note there's an economic layer that's um, compounding on the social layer that the prisoners are experiencing. They work in like a coterminous sort of way. Like, like you were saying earlier, uh, like Reagan's neoliberal policies, cutting the social safety net, busting unions, you know, right? Prisons were all part of that. You know, it was all one package deal. You know, neoliberalism, I mean, this was happening in England too with Margaret Thatcher. I mean, neoliberalism was sort of the, the newest global project um, of, you know, sort of the international community, the, the, the West, I suppose. But, you know, and it, it sort of connects with our last episode. You know, we were talking about how democracy is subsumed by a market rationality penal methodologies and prisons are also subsumed to that same market rationality because they are part of the state yet also part of private enterprise it, it's of note especially sort of within the, the 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 protests in which the conditions are far much worse within the private sector of the prisons you know um, this we're going to see like you said Kalis alluded to the the incentive to pack these prisons and when you think of the psychological torment of being a prisoner, a lot of it is tied to mobility and your inability to move. And it's why, you know, Dr. King marching literally was such a uh, was a resistance in itself because it was the act of being mobile, you know, mobilizing, being able to move around freely. And so when you when you're in prison, that's your principal punishment that you're not allowed to move around. You're not allowed to you know, stretch your legs. You're not allowed to to do that. And so when you crowd these prisons with more people, you strip the uh, the resources from the funding and you just pretty much put them in kennels like, you know, like farm animals. You're going to get an increase in the inner gang violence. And I think that's another um, a very interesting way in which the um, prison strike has kind of changed behaviors within the prisons. And I say this because I was I was reading um, an interview from one of the jailhouse lawyers who, you know, can only do so many interviews because, you know, like some of these guys are still in prison. And once they know 
that you're kind of moving in the strike. They're moving him around 24-7. They, they moved him. He's been to Oregon, Washington. They moved him to Missouri because, you know, they, they know he's a key player. And we have to think of how some of those, you know, um, those, uh, you know, when, when slaves were being imported from certain tribes and chieftains, how the former warlords and chieftains would be educating the other and organizing the masses. And so the same methods of control are being utilized and they're making sure the problematic uh, prisoners are being kept away from, you know, access to information and whatnot. Um, so I just think that's another parallel that I mean. And then when you think of the confined spaces, is that not? Similar to, you know, the ways in which, you know, the the spaces were confined for it. We could talk about Cora. You know, we could talk about the Underground Railroad and how they were living in, you know, just these quarters. Um, we could talk about the Middle Passage. You know, I mean, like, it, it's all about restricting one's mobility. Slaves were deemed as property that didn't have any rights and could be moved. And they didn't have the right to move themselves. We're mm-hmm. seeing that with prisoners as well. Um, prisoners generally, I mean, like you just said, one prisoner getting relocated to multiple different states, they can dress it up and say it's for different reasons. But these private institutions, brothers and sisters in money, when they get full and all of a sudden they actually do need the space, can ship whatever persons they do have to the next vacant two to three rooms mm-hmm. and then just make sure that everyone stays at full capacity at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a brotherhood in arms when you consider it as such. Um, but yeah. Another uh, another demand put forth um, is that um, and this is one I kind of want to get everyone's opinion on. um, But it's within the Truth and Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act. They call that it must be rescinded so that imprisoned humans have a possibility of rehab, rehabilitation and parole. Further, no human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole. Um. So this idea, at least within the, you know, within the jail, how lawyers speak, knowing the ins and out of the prisons, knowing the ways in which, you know, a lot of these crimes are put unjustly and a lot of the sentences hardly match the crime, given the bias for the cap, you know, the capitalistic ways to um, join that. He makes that claim that no one should be sentenced to life without life, without possibility of parole um, as an ethical human condition. And that's one I'm. You know, that's one I've never really considered because, I mean, especially in the headline driven world, you see some things across that ticker. You're like, oh, they they don't deserve a second chance. And so, you know, we can go into philosophy right now. I wanted to know, you know, you guys thoughts. Um, is, is that is that our role? Is that our. Personally, I would I would like to agree with that demand in the sense that um, a great novel that I really do recommend, Just mm-hmm. Mercy. Um, I believe it's Brian Stevenson. I believe I'm not sure. Um, it's a phenomenal book, and he discusses how he came across creating the Equal Justice Initiative and the stories that impacted him as a young attorney. And in particular, having the possibility of parole when you see it go across that ticker mm-hmm. that you just mentioned makes you feel as though it's a second chance. Mm-hmm. That's just about it. Because having the possibility of parole means that you are allowed to appeal your charges or you are allowed to try and find new relevant evidence. But whether that is actually allowed and admitted into your case, if you're going to get a retrial, if the court is going to actually waste resources on you when you've been locked up for 20 plus years, it's a mountain. It's a mountain to climb. He discusses cases in Alabama and certain places down in the South, particularly at that time. But I'm sure you could dig hard enough to find um, parallels even now. 
where the local county sheriff, police, and judge are all on the same page. So by the time he had his issues with the police officer and brought it to the sheriff, it became an issue that he then wanted to bring to the judge. And by the time he brought it to the judge, he's standing in a room with three other men who don't see why he's pushing so hard for an ultimately innocent man to mm -hmm. be set free. And I think the idea of having parole has connotations that make people shy away from it. But to give every prisoner the opportunity for parole, in my view, only allows those few, but yet largely populated, um, innocently charged, mm -hmm. wrongfully charged people who are on life or on death row or whatever the case is, they have an opportunity to have their mm. story heard. It, it's something that I think mm. psychologists to this day are studying as to why someone mm. who is guilty would constantly um, pursue mm -hmm. their innocence. And it's something where you see people who are guilty will claim their innocence to the day they die into the moment mm. of denial. But then there are others who are doing it because, well, what is the opportunity that they might actually be proven mm. innocent? Someone who's guilty proven by the facts is guilty. But if all the facts haven't been admitted, then what kind of fair argument do you have? So I do think that that's fair, particularly now in the uh, presence of DNA and all of the different technologies that we have that can analyze these cases a lot more, uh, a lot more closely. And that gives a better opportunity for the justice that we're pursuing. Yeah, I, um, I'll hop on the death sentence question. I, uh, I think we should abolish oh, yeah. the death sentence. I mean, we're talking about how horrible these conditions are. I mean, it's already a death sentence. People are dying of mm -hmm. dehydration, whether they're in there for weed for a couple of years or murder for 25, you know, they're, they're already dying, Yeah, you know? And um, so I support ending the death penalty. And, and interestingly enough, I mean, this isn't a justification. It's just a sort of a, a anecdotal. Um, so in Norway, uh, the mass murderer Anders Bering Brevik, who went to a children's summer camp and killed like over a hundred people, has internet access all day, a bed, like not just a cot, mm -hmm. like a bed, two rooms. Like, this is the status, like, just the, the disparity between. So, I mean, yeah, Norway is an advanced country, but right, the United States, right, supposedly the leaders of the free world. These are the yeah. disparities between the how prisoners are treated. Um, it's interesting fact, but but yeah, I uh, fuck the death penalty. Yeah, for sure, there. and I, I think that's the cognitive dissonance. Like you, you can talk to the same person. I'll take me for example. Like you throw capital punishment, I'm like no, like that's. I mean, because there's so many things wrong. Like you can't. You can't just bring up DNA after someone's already dead. I mean, that it doesn't make sense. And the amount of years, I mean, just the psychological damage, knowing that you will be killed is come on. Like, let's think about that. But in the same way, I can say that I can equally hold the idea that life without possibility parole isn't a death sentence when that's exactly what it is, because, you know, it's framed in a way, at least you can go to the etymology of it. It's life. You know what I'm saying? You got a chance. You shouldn't even be alive like that. But um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm really glad it kind of, you know, get you. Get your, get your ideals on that. And I think, especially in the instance of this demand, it was more rooted in the fact that there are, there's a significant population, like Carlos alluded to, that are in, like, that are, you know, in prison without all the facts being admitted into evidence, that are in prison without, they were, they had to take a plea, plea deal. I mean, I don't know if Carlos has some numbers or if he, uh, oh, <laughs> goddamn, <laughs> excuse me.
excuse me. <laughs> I'm sorry. If Carlos could uh, help me out on that. But, um, you know, just I know as far as trial attorneys and like the amount of trials have significantly decreased where, I mean, you're held in jail. And if you can't pay your bonds, you know, you you're put you're given this plea deal because your day in court might not be coming for years anyway. So you're still being in prison and you can only hope you win. You can only hope they account that as time served. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. And, no, I was just going to mention that as you d- discuss uh, plea deals and their importance, we've been discussing how all of these different systems compound on themselves. So I think it's important that the listeners don't take any one of the things that we said mm. independently because it's not, it doesn't give you an honest view. Your perspective is a little bit swayed. So as you mentioned, these plea deals, um, the, the, a young man gets brought in and they're given a certain bail that they can't reach. And now if it's a $100,000 bail for someone who has never seen that much money in their whole lifetime, um, they have the option, all right, you can pay this bail and you'll be let out before your trial date or before your hearing. Or you can wait it out until your hearing and that date hasn't even hmm. been picked yet. So I think the ideal demonstration of this is Khalid Browder. Um, he was a, a, per, a young man in, I believe he was Bruh, 17, yeah. 16. Um, and he was imprisoned in Rikers Island for three years <laughs> waiting a trial date. And that is absurd, ultimately to be released and have his charges dropped. Um, this was yet another example of trying to put another body in prison just because the facts were vague enough that you couldn't say no. I think there's a there's a very important line between, all right, he's innocent, he's guilty, throw him in prison, or just the idea that someone can be placed there before yeah. knowing. So with Khalif in this extremely corrupt prison, he gets beaten on, abused, raped throughout his entire existence there. He leaves with depression and a whole bunch of uh, psychosis issues and ultimately commits mm-hmm. suicide. Um, a story like that is the one that we know of, but there are yeah. millions that we haven't heard. So I think it's very important to hear that, you know, you were discussing it, a lot of these, um, traumas, just living in prison, just making it through. Um, and you question psychologists again, have discussed how within a prison is an entire society. Um, there's quite a few documentaries on the different wives mm-hmm. that exist in an all male mm-hmm. prison the different roles mm. that they play. Um, a young man that a lot of people may have followed his story on a podcast as well. Um, what the podcast mm. serial, I'm forgetting the young man's name, um, but it will come to me. He in prison became a cook and in becoming a cook, everyone became his friend because he was able to give them nice meals one way or the other. And that was his method of protection. Another young man will have done it the same way by having uh, packets of cigarettes, which are illegal, but if they're smuggled in, it's considered currency. There is an entire society within a prison. And then when these people are kicked out or released, they can't function with our, within our own society. And many of them willingly, due to the conditions that they can't acquire for themselves, go back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of remarkable to think that someone, due to the fact that because from a young age they didn't attain any of their own education, has been educated by the prison and that that's where they feel home and that that's the societal structure that they identify with. That to me is damaging because we're discussing creating someone who is more at home in these conditions. The conditions really haven't changed. It's just the fact that even if you let me out of prison, I can't get by. 
But here with cigarettes, fighting and violence, I can get by because I know those rules. Those rules are made clear to me. But no one outside is giving me any kind of assistance otherwise. So to be asking for things like the opportunity for parole, for asking for things like humane conditions and pursuing education, having those things within the system that exists today creates a whole new generation of prisoners who have a completely different outlook. And that hasn't changed, in my opinion, some of the more major things that are producing the issues mm-hmm. that we have. So, again, just remember that each and every one of these things compounds on yet one of the other. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's gold right there. And so I think one last element with of the prison society we're going to speak on before we go into the ways in which, you know, the, the, the action that can be done. You know, we understand being in prison is jail. I mean, it, it's, it's literally, you know, it's been the lore of, 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 you know, the end of jokes. I mean, it's something we're all scared of, something no one would willingly want to put themselves into. Um, and while we still made the distinction um, between, you know, the enslaved, you know, involuntary immigrants versus uh, being in prison where you had more life chances, I guess, you know, compared to slave, I mean, you know, if someone hits you with a crowbar for like five days, I mean, for like 400 years, and then they start to stab you or instead, like, is it, you know, like we can go into the politics of, you know, trauma, whatever. No one's trying to do those Olympics right now. But um, the, the immense violence of prison is probably the final thing that kind of puts the peg into their call for action. And we can go into, I guess you could say the, um, the uh, precipitating cause of this strike. Now, the strike was planned for a while, but I think what gave it a little bit of media coverage. I mean, it, I'm kind of really surprised it didn't get enough media coverage, but, you know, whatever. That's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're doing as a media, you know, as a, as a company right here. But um, the Lee prison riot, it occurred in South Carolina. It started around 7.30 p.m. There were two guards on duty and the the fight broke out in the dorm and it took five hours six hours before a SWAT could be assembled coming to the rural you know parts of South Carolina and stop the the fight seven inmates were killed now this will be a textbook example of Fox News taking that information and being black on black violence gang members versus x y and z but we can look that lack of protection as a method of control of the, the, you know, of the prison system of the prison crats, you know, who want to control the problem makers and, you know, to, to let that, you know, to allow that to happen. Um, now I've looked at the facts and I'm not going to lie. If it's just me and you and we're running, you know, we're, we're on guard for prison and two gangs of prisoners are going at each other with shivs, knives, I mean, blades this long, I'm not about to just jump in there. I mean, I'll be honest with you. And so I'm not going to put too much of the, I'm not going to say I'm putting blame on people. I just think it's an indictment of the entire system. And so, you know, just this, this need for protection, you know, not even from, um, you know, from the, cause I mean the, the violence exhibited by the prison guards, I mean, it's legendary. It's a thing, you know, written about and talking to people um, being exposed to chemical agents when they don't, uh, you know, when they don't comply quick enough or if they, you know, fight back, they're shot with rubble, rubber pellets. I mean, if you're the troublemaker, who's to stop a, a squad, you know, of, of, of um, patrollers to come in and just beat your beat, beat your ass? You know, like that's a, a lot. That's an actual reality that is visited upon many prisoners. And so I think this violence is also shaping the the, the mentality of the I mean, the, the psychology of everything. And um, 
And so I just kind of wanted to put a um, just put a put a light into in which, you know, um, how much of this violence is caused by overcrowding? You know, how much of this violence is caused by the fact that no one's saying anything on our, our end? Um, but yeah, so I think that's the, like, that's another piece of the puzzle that kind of makes the most sense why, you know, they're seeking a change, you know, right now in, in, in this, this step into, um, and into, you know, the next, next steps of it. And so, um, but I think a problem that I kind of want to transition into that, why would it take five hours, you know, saying to assemble a SWAT team? Oh, because someone decided, some politician that, hey, we can increase our um, political representation on the census if we move a private prison, import hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people of color into this prison, they will now be counted as part of that district. And so now you're disenfranchising voters who aren't even allowed to vote for themselves and using their actual bodies against them, against their own interests. And so it is because of this practice of putting prisons in these rural middle of nowhere towns in rural, you know, the South or in the rural Midwest or whatever, that these prisoners aren't afforded the adequate protection. These prisons are understaffed half the time, or you could look at it the other way. They're overpopulated. There has to be a meeting in the middle. And this practice of uh, prisoner gerrymandering has to be, you know, accounted for. I think only two states, I think it's New York for sure, and someone else that have literally put it into law, you're not allowed to do that. And so, um, you know, does that does that ring true to you guys? Like, do you think like to what extent is that um like does that remind you of the three fifths uh three fifths act? You know, to anyone like where a slave didn't have the right to a yeah. vote, but you know he's three fifths of a man, so he can give you a vote. Like, am I crazy for thinking that? No, I I would agree that uh it it definitely harkens back to the three fifths compromise. I mean, it's it's representation or mm-hmm. rather. Uh, you, you, your body is counted in the census, but you're not allowed counted. to participate in the political process. And mm-hmm. so that is a, a sham of the first degree. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also, I mean, on this, on this question of violence, I think another thing that is often overlooked is uh, many. So let's look at the location of prisons. Like you were talking about many of these backwater towns, you know, poor uneducated folks go to the military they come back they become cops they become prison guards they're disgruntled they have ptsd they're not taken care of so then you have you know essentially people whose motives are not separate from their work mm. um and in many cases i mean they, they talk about a lot of white supremacist gangs in prisons um, among the prisoners, but I think it's naive to believe that the guards play no part in that. Um, and so just as, uh, you know, uh, the, there are high numbers of white supremacists in police precincts. Um, yeah, I, I would wager that there's a lot in prisons as well. Um, and this further contributes to the uh, racialization of crime. So if you have racist police officers putting them into prisons with racist guards that are um, working in prisons run mm-hmm. by politicians in these backwater towns, 
I mean, it's a, an endless cycle of, um, I mean, it's a microcosm of the American project, mm. you know, of overt white supremacy conducting itself. So, And I think it's, it's a really important that you mention that because you take a step back and witness, um, again, the economics that play a role in this. And to say that the guards are involved equally as with the, the inmates when it comes to this, um, it, as you mentioned that, for some reason, what, what flashed through my mind is the constant, um, I'm not really sure where the narrative comes from, so I don't want to give it a voice. However, there's always a narrative that separates the impoverished white population from the impoverished black population, when mm-hmm. yet they don't recognize or have the opportunity to recognize that their gripes and their strife is likely very similar. Um, so a lot of the idea of pushing race and a lot of the idea of um, making sure that that remains a hot topic rather than viewing how many ways that we can economically see the social strata aligns lower income white males with lower income black males, yet the likelihood that those two entities of or categories of persons work together in order to fix it is extremely low and that keeps those in the top percent safe and those in the top percent continue to exploit them. So that same rural neighborhood, when they're bringing in a whole bunch of of prisoners one way or the next, and now you have a legislator who needs a certain number of constituents to be of color or of some sort of other descent. Here you have, like Ed said, that influx, but yet those people that have just been brought in as prisoners to make sure that this legislation can go through, um, they are then, (laughs) their woes are compounded further past than the fact that they're going to prison now you have guards and other prisoners who are actively against you due to your race. Um, so I don't know. I think picking up on the dichotomies that, that take place between yeah. where we are economically and then how that those relate to how we are racially, um, slaves in prison also kind of follow the same route. The violence that's always present within slave conditions is almost equally present as a prisoner. Um, you will be beat up, stabbed, whatever, robbed, whatever the case is in prison equally from the guards who are there to protect you and the other prisoners who are considered just your peers. Um, Mm -hmm. You also have to remember that you have a complete mix. So the violent offenders are with every other offender. So for whatever reason you may go to jail, the guy who just murdered four or five people is going to be bunkered with the guy who committed financial fraud. So the likelihood that this guy who's pent up on all sorts of different traumas would like to take some of that ventilation out on the one guy who's in here just because he pushed some numbers. I mean, you can expect where these violences are going to accrue. And then further, it then augments. And yet again, I keep, I sound like I'm repeating myself, but it's true. These issues are compounded when the society within these prisons only allows for a certain kind of knowledge to be gained. And the number of people who go in unaffiliated from a gang, whether it be white supremacist, blood crip, however you call it, they go to prison over an unrelated drug charge. And then by the com- that time they come out, they're looking for some sort of security and protection on their own regard. And they find those gangs right again on the outside. So mm-hmm. these are re- like, they're very cyclical. A lot of these um, issues that we're discussing, one way out is yet another way back in. And mm. one way of remaining in guarantees the money to go in the exact same direction, whether or not we're moving from prison to prison. Well, and this definitely has a, a historical precedent as well. I mean, um, 
the prime targets uh, post-Civil uh, War for imprisonment uh, were the poor whites and recently freed African Americans who were striking together in mm-hmm. solidarity, like the populist movement of the late 1800s. They were then thrown in prison for striking, mm-hmm. right? And so it's, it's uh, these tactics are used by the upper echelons as a divide and conquer um, when they see solidarity popping up. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, the, these things are informed by their own history. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's powerful to see how, how cyclical it is. Um, but but yeah, Ed, I'll let you chime in on this. Yeah, no, I I think what also gets me back to, you know, your earlier point about the demographics of the imprisoned and the demographics of the um of the, uh, the the patrol guards is in which they are being rewarded for their imprisonment. Like these jobs are being created. You know, they're literally creating a title, you create some authority, and you get a paycheck above all things. Um, and you know, you, you only thing is you have to be willing to live near that prison. And so who are you going to recruit? Who's going to drive two hours in the middle of this place? No one. So you're recruiting, you're paying local people, the local, you know, people who grew up in that same poverty, but they have access to a job, a way to kind of, you know, uh, express that selves now. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of look at that as, as like you say, like a microcosm of, um, you know, the slave experiment, you know, the invention of police and controllers to control, you know, the, the, the micro, you know, to control the enslaved population. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not lost without history. Now, um, I know, I know both of you guys got to go. I got to let you guys go pretty soon. So I guess we could finish the last portion of the show speaking on, you know, resistance and, um, some of the, the ways in which, um, um, like just, just the ways this boycott has unfolded and kind of, you know, the next steps, now, I, I think one interesting dynamic is that the ways in which the prison crats use the prisoners' families against them to, like, discourage participation in boycotts. Because, remember, it's not just saying, you know, I'm not going to work. You know, I'm not going into work today. Like, or, you know, I'm going on a hunger strike today. Or, you know, I'm going to protest and put up these demands. Another part of that prison, you know, economic ecosystem is the phone calls. I mean, these, like... We complain about our phone bill, but um, some of the rates prisoners are charged per phone call limit the amount of ways they can get access to information, the access they can get to their uh, uh, families and to their culture. And I mean, it's a complete I mean, the cost to retain that culture. I mean, that just that reminds me of the first people brought in from Africa. You know, the first start of that social death was erasing one's connection to the past. And so once a prisoner's connection to um, you know, to his family, to, you know, a brother, to, you know, the outside media. If I want to do an interview with them, that collect call is uh, enormous. And yet that company is allowed to profit off of the most vulnerable. You look at companies like Aramark who are given this this crap food. I mean, we have me in college. They they served this. I mean, Aramark, they did our dining services and like I had gestational issues. Like, I'm not lying to you guys. Like, I literally. Right off the bat, as soon as I put two and two together, man, they tore your stomach up. 
it tore you it tore your stomach up like i learned to cook out of need of survival and kind of going back to um the cereal podcast being able to cook and provide nourishment that'll go a long way and so you know that's the thing you're not participating in the hunger strike i mean there's little vending machines in the dorms you have to say no to that and that may be the only food that's worth anything in that damn place and so the sacrifice, you know, the the families, they're coming down hard on them. Like, you know, you need to stop doing this for you. Extend your time before they um keep you in solitary. You know, I can't talk to you. You being a bad father, X, Y, and Z. But they're not in those cages. And I think that's what needs to be remembered, especially us being, you know, philosophizing and talking about it. Even then, we're not in those cages. And so I think this this is just monumental work that they're putting together. Um, this, you know, just the boycotts of the labor and um, I think, you know, we got to do our job and make sure, you know, their story, you know, gets gets lifted. I mean, I really like how the phrase, the turn of words that you just used was we are not in those cages um, as much as historians and African-Americans and black people throughout the nation try to get in touch with slavery. That big gap that you mentioned, that social death, no one really knows. And we're yeah. constantly pushing for more and more and more information. So I think their 10th uh, commandment or their 10th demand, I mm-hmm. forgive me, is for representation via voting and yeah. the wording that they use. I actually want to pull it up because I think it was um, I think it was well put. Um, they said the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, Khalid Browder, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Represa- representation is demanded. All voices count. Um, The issue of prison reform has been with us. I mean, we've been trying to reform it. Bill Clinton's laws that came through bipartisanly slipped through as though they were prison reform, when in reality they were just making the problem, if not way worse, not helping at all. So viewing this, and this is coming from uh, what was a liberal cabinet. It was a liberal process. The president was Democrat. It makes a lot of people question, oh, how do these things work? But if you can get rid of these labels and start paying attention to what actual details are coming across, I think it's huge that whether you are an ex-felon or currently a felon, I think everybody in prison, whether or not they have their head on their shoulders or not, deserves the right to say, I do or don't want to vote. It's as simple as that. Because if they're going to make any kind of um, impression on our society, without having anything to do with touching their parole, having anything to do with touching, giving them jobs. If all the 2 million people within prisons in the United States today gave a vote and that vote was counting, I think it's it's just increasingly what, because here is the, the prison reform that we might need from the prisoners themselves. Here is the potential, uh, not prison reform, but law enforcement reform. The young men that we're seeing all over television get slaughtered, beaten, beat, whatever the case may be, and then they end up in prison and then their names get forgotten, or if they aren't forgotten, they're listed on a t-shirt. Those men who are in the system now are the best voices we have for what needs to be fixed. New Jersey Supreme Court just passed um, a bill stating that the body cam footage on their police officers is no longer considered public record which is an extremely dangerous precedent to be taken. Multiple appeals courts throughout the nation have, I think a, a total of 32 of them, have stated that um, not only is it the public record, but it's important because they are the hand of the government. 
And mm -hmm. those who vote for the government deserve to view that hand willingly. So third parties amongst most states are encouraged to, to film and record law enforcement. But here comes this body cam issue where all of a sudden we're seeing the mics get turned off and smeared and this, that, and next. Whatever the case may be, the persons that hurt the most from that, those are the people we need to hear from. Mm. Those are the people that deserve to have their voices heard. And in my opinion, those are the prisoners. So with 2.9 or upwards, we're going to chase 3 million if the rate continues as it is. Yeah. In prisons and 300 million people in the United States, it makes zero sense that that many people can be within our country count towards legislative uh, gerrymandering, and yet they don't have a vote. It just doesn't add up. How mm -hmm. are they going to count towards your population and diversity, but yet they have no say in how any of that is accumulated or, or, or obtained? So I think mm -hmm. it's. I think, in my opinion, if anything was to pass from this strike, their voting rights is my is what I would pursue most. Yeah. I agree with that. And there's been a lot of campaigns. There was one here in South Bend, uh, Indiana, to end cash bail. Um, mm. And that is a huge one, I think. Uh, you talked about bail earlier, Carlos. Um, you know, these exorbitant prices that people can't afford to pay. And then they become a Khalif Browder without a name. You know, then they're, they're locked up waiting for their trial date. And it feels like it never comes. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think you, you nailed it right on the head. Uh, the prisoners and, and, and this prison strike is prisoners speaking for themselves. Right. You know, yeah. and, and, and so encouraging this activity and encouraging um, further uh, prison strikes. And, and, and because it's, there is that piece of the pie that is so large, that's economic withholding their labor is hurting those corporations, which then get the subsidies from the government. So it's, it's a powerful tool. Um, and I would feel that this conversation is incomplete if we didn't talk about all of our sisters locked up in prison. Since 1977, oh. the incarceration rate of women has grown sevenfold. Mm. Sevenfold. Mm. And not only that, you know, the, the uh, women's uh, poverty is criminalized in numerous other ways. Um, you know, uh, the, like, you know, the Reagan era, um, you know, welfare rhetoric queen. of welfare queens and this and that. Well, let's talk about the reality of it. Women are denied, you know, hygienic products, access mm. to reproductive care in prison then they come out to raise a family and they can't get SNAP. You know, they can't actually then mm. take care of the family. Mm -hmm. um, mm. So the, the contradictions are heightened. Uh, not only talking about our brothers in prison, but our sisters as well. The sisters that we are very, very good point. I think it's, it's huge. I think the women that are in prison are experiencing a type of trauma that is unique in the fact that it is even quieter than the men's. Um, Mm. It's uh, something where if you're going to discuss prison strikes the same way, I mean, the correlation is, is by no means as important. But the same way you look at has how the NBA is treated versus the WNBA, the WNBA yeah. is borderline forgotten. And yeah. any problem that pops up in the NBA, it's addressed with all this media attention. It's addressed with all of this. LeBron said what? Meanwhile, there's a campaign of women who's outpacing the Warriors right now. And no one seems to really know. However... 
aside from that, um, I think it's important to note that you mentioned their reproductive uh, pr- uh, products that they're not having mm-hmm. any sort of access to. Women going in and out of prison during, after, before labor is also a big issue as well. Um, they are either giving birth in prison and then in that moment having their baby stripped away from them, traumatic in, in so many levels. And there's also the conditions in which, like you said, they can't raise the child once they've had birth outside of prison or let alone pay for their medical fees. Yeah. And then prior to, there are multiple to, I, I don't know any of the statistics, but I remember um, it was an article that I had read, the number of miscarriages going on in female prisons. Um, rape is at an astonishing rate in women's mm. prisons, um, predominantly from the guards, but also from other female prisoners as well. Um, so I think a lot of the traumas that they're experiencing are unique to the female condition. So when we begin to discuss it, a lot of times people will just shoot to what all prisoners will understand. But the caveats that are, are applicable to women alone, I think they do deserve a spotlight and a segment in and of themselves. So you are 100% correct to remind us of that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree with everything you said. And, and one more consideration, I think, that I, something I actually just saw before we... we um, started recording was prisoners in South Carolina will not be evacuated from their prison cells during the hurricane. Mm. That's what I forgot. That was the property point that I had forgotten earlier. They don't even care to move them. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's sickening truly. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, my, my thoughts are certainly mandatory. It's a mandatory, uh, evacuation yeah. that for whatever reason this prison is allowed to say no to I, I actually don't even understand how that can play out when the governor has made a mandatory evacuation call um, right are the guards going to remain who how does this work but it just reminds you that you know we're viewing them as different as other or as separate from the population and mm. it's great that you mentioned that that was the point I forgot so thank you yeah no prisons exist as a uh, uh, a point of exception, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think with, with all of this information and I think we left a lot on the table, to be honest, I mean, we, that's a whole nother 90 minute segment, you know, we could speak on, you know, and that's one thing jailhouse lawyers, that's, they're very cautious. They, they con uh, continuously reference our men and women in prisons, men and women are black, you know, they use humans. So it's not just, yeah, black humans or black and brown humans. So, I mean, it's definitely um, not beyond their scope. And I would, um, I guess just moving forward on um, some good reading materials. Um, obviously, you know, you're going to want to have, you're going to want to take a listen to uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow. I mean, you got to get on that. Um, we mentioned neo-colonialism. Um, Hannah, what's the book you, you told me to get on? And I'm sorry, I haven't got on it. Um, oh my, uh, so I'm, many. No, I'm forgetting. There is a mention, uh, recently I was reading, uh, uh, V.I. Lenin's, uh, on the national and colonial question. He talks about penal colonies and it's interesting to think that penal colonies still existed in the 20th century. Um, so that's a good one, V.I. Lennon on the national and colonial question. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. like, Joe, yep. by giant by Brian Stevenson, I believe. Um, phenomenal book. It's short read, but it's really good. Well, title one more time. What was the title? Just Mercy. Just Mercy. Yeah. So the you know, these, these, is the, the guy who founded the Equal Justice Initiative in um, Alabama. 
Yeah, so he knows his stuff. And so as we we synthesize this information, I just want us to, you know, I want to bring us to Orlando Patterson. You know, um, he wrote a groundbreaking book, a study published in 82. Um, A lot of AAS, you know, leagues of thought still base a lot of their work around his concept of social death. It's a term I use, you know, I I use it very comfortably in the show. But social death is just a condition of people not being accepted as fully human by the wider society. And that's what we've heard today in regards to the prison population. See, Patterson first defined slavery as one of the most extreme forms of the relations of domination, approaching the limits of total power from the viewpoint of the master and of total powerlessness from the viewpoint of the slave. And so when we look at the slave, you know, the enslaved were stripped of their family culture and their humanity you know, as a result of the deliberate race codes, you know, the enslaved was exposed to this social murder. And so in order to resist the grinding away of one's live life, will to live, the enslaved men and women sought strategies of escape. They sought rebellions to come against the conditions of slavery. And so we have to ask, you know, when you look at both options, you can run away, undergo the Underground Railroad. Very dangerous. Nine times out of ten, you're going to get caught and killed, tortured. Or you can mount a rebellion, even more dangerous, 9.5% or 9.5 out of 10, you're going to get caught and killed. And so we have to ask, what is it that made them hold on to that 1%? Is it what we alluded to, that life without possibility of parole? Is this that parole in which they seek, that that ability to, hey, at least, you know, with the enslaved, they knew the chances were against them. They knew they probably were going to fail, but they had that hope, that enough drive enough to maybe push them forward, follow that North Star, undergo the Underground Railroad, go look back at Cora. And so, you know, when someone is willing to subscribe to odds such as in, such insurmountable odds in which the 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 consequence of being wrong is one's life, then you have to understand that they really have a cause in which they believe and what. A slave and uh, what a prisoner have in common, they don't, you know, they come from different eras, they come from different situations, but they both want a freedom. They both want to see freedom. And we have to look at our prisoners as people who want to see freedom. Now, I'm not saying we go in, storm, you know, these prisons and we hit a button and unlock all the, the cells. People are responsible for the consequences that they've imparted on people. You know, they've done, people have done things and they have to pay the crimes for it. But it doesn't mean they aren't human, you know. And so they're restricted to these concrete boxes to die a slow death 23 hours a day. And so any opportunity to fight back, you know, they, they, they jump on it. And what has to end as, as, to do, as in, in line with the demands, this uh, labor system, because they're giving shit pay and they're making these guys work in dangerous environments, exposing the prisoners to cancerous agents. Because they know the psychological control they have. They know that if I keep you locked up 23 hours a day, I could promise you a trip directly to hell, a hike, a three, a 300 mile trek to hell. And people are going to volunteer just to get out of that cage because prison is about limiting one's mobility. And so we ask, why else would a prisoner riot when they know you can't break out of a jail? Why else would Attica happen? You know, why else did these Lee riots happen? Um, it's because people, they want the basic necessities and, you know, it's, 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 they're fighting this social death in which they can't communicate with the family. They're being uneducated. They're not allowed to pursue education. There's no rehabilitation. Their condition only worsens. 
some type of resistance must come back. And so if we look at history and the founding of this nation, we saw that it took a civil war. It took a dead president to keep America from falling apart because the issue of slavery, the issue of keeping someone subhuman is what divided this country as it once was. And so today, I believe at least on the table, it must be considered and maybe more refined, maybe not at this instance, but understood that this is not just the issue of the enslaved of prisoners being, you know, having bad conditions. Democracy depends on the abolition of prison slavery. No, no more can the labor be used to create American wealth that doesn't benefit them. We passed an amendment against that. No more can the vote be used against them, but, um, you know, directly against their interests. I mean, we can't keep cutting these people out of the prison legal systems unless we are to admit as a country we are harboring a population of slaves because only moment in history in which people were denied their legal rights, denied their right to uh, move and be mobile, denied the ability to earn from their own labor is in slavery, y'all. And so no one's saying X, Y, and Z. No. So we can't look at these people, you know, people of color who are being locked up disproportionately more than their white counterparts. You know, no longer can a black person be punished more because the victim was white. And so if we are to survive and create this democracy and this project in which we are undertaking as a company, I think the biggest pull away is that we have to it has to be a revolution within the legal system, because at the end of the day, it wasn't until the 13th Amendment. Granted, it took a whole lot of war. It took a lot of trauma. It took a lot of history being put together. But until that law changed, the mechanisms in which we were in part were justifiably legal. And so as long as the 13th Amendment keeps that clause, that punishment can be rendered uh, slavery as an acceptable punishment to someone duly convicted. We can't escape the legacy of this country's past. And so with that, I believe, you know, the point of our democracy definitely depends on, you know, the, the freedom of our most vulnerable um, population. Um, and so that's what we have for the Palace of Thought. I don't know if we have... Um, if Carlos and Hannah have any more final thoughts or anything they want to su supplement to the, the final argument. But um, please, as always, you know, saying traveler, you're always welcome to stay in the palace of thought. Um, I think the next episode I want to do, um, I think I want to talk about Bezos. I think I want to talk about Amazon, him being the million, uh, the million dollar. I mean, the most rich million, that's pennies. You know, him being yeah, a billion, uh, him being the richest man in the world. And um, how I mean, I, I'm going to send you guys some articles, but um, Senator Sanders just introduced the Bezos Act and um, it, it pretty much penalizes large corporations that um, that are making a lot of money, but most of their workforce needs government subsidies. And so for the and so as Americans, we're footing the bill to keep make sure the people working at Amazon because they don't they're not making enough to get, you know, rights. They're not making enough to get insurance to feed. So they need assistance. They need that. So we're paying for that. And so this bill, in effect, would make Amazon pay for that subsidy instead. So I don't know if you guys are excited by uh, the idea of attacking that, maybe jumping on that. Um, we'll get some stuff together. If you guys want to chime in, let me know. But um, definitely sounds like an interesting topic. I was not aware of. Yeah, it was just introduced. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see if it makes it to the floor. We'll see how it goes. But I definitely think it's okay. Go ahead, sound off on him, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just no. I just wanted to pop in and say Jeff Bezos is a scoundrel, and 
that's about it. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, hey, look, the the information I'm have to send you guys some documents, but um, yeah, there's a good book that's circulating out there. A guy he worked in Amazon for like six months, and I mean, the labor is just intense. I mean, it's all based on the mold of production. If you read this article, this interview, you'll have a good idea of what it's like to be an Amazon employee, and uh, we can definitely tie it into this um this conversation of slavery and. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get jumping on that one. But uh, um, last, last real quick. Um, yeah, the most I, I think just generally on the outlook of prison reform based on our conversation, um, not that it's major progress, but just to know that there is something or at least some people that are trying to make it happen uh, in mid-May, I think. Mid, yeah, May, it seemed this year, uh, the House had passed the bill that would provide $50 million in financing for five years, so $10 million a year, which is chump change. But the money would pay for job training, education, and drug abuse treatment for prisoners. And I think that's a step in the right direction. Obviously, it was probably something that went to the Senate and got kicked back. But um, the fact that a bill like that could get through to the House and that the Senate might change and all of these different things, the fact that a bill can get passed in either one of our um, legislative processes, it's, it's a statement. So um, it, it might just be a drop in the water. Hopefully the next time that bill gets through, it's $100 million, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, let's add a couple of zeros to that. But um, that, like I said, it's definitely work out there being done. And um, yeah, you know, at the Palace of Thought, you, you thank you, travelers, for, uh, you know, tuning in to this episode. You know, I think we left a lot, a lot, a lot of good content on the table. So as always, you know, stop by whenever you want. Take what you like. Say as long as you will. But please leave the uh, leave the palace clean for the next traveler. Um, please, you know, give a warm, um, warm shout out to um, our, my iTunes page. Come and uh, visit the, um, you know, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Find it on SoundCloud. Um, there's more avenues I, I'm, I'm putting it on. Um, I definitely just need you guys support uh, just to go ahead and listen, just to be informed. This isn't like some giant ego trip. Like if only 30 people catch the episode, that's perfectly fine. You know what I'm saying? That's 30 more people we were able to present our conversation to. We're able to impact their thoughts. And so please just, you know, continue showing support. I love all y'all. And um, please have a blessed night and, uh, you know, enjoy, enjoy your week, everybody. <laughs>